Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. We have two scripture readings this morning. Our first one is in Genesis chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Our second scripture reading comes from Numbers chapter 13, starting in verse 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron, the whole Israelite community, at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, And it does flow of milk and honey. Here is its fruits. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there, and the Amalekites live in in Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb came and said to the people before Moses, And said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we certainly can do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread along the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours all living in it. All the people we saw there were of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Before we jump in the sermon, I just wanted to uh, just, just say thank you for everyone who participated in yesterday's Packing Hope event. You might not know this, uh, but uh, yesterday, uh, f- over 50,000 meals were packed in those two hours. Uh, and after, yeah, we can give an applause for that, yeah. You know, I, it, after I was reflecting on it yesterday, after the event, I was thinking to myself, when around 25 people or so linked arms to help create and start this church community, I bet you God was smiling about things that we did not know we would do like that. Uh, that God knew it in his heart and his mind what, what we'd be a part of. And what an honor it is to be a part of something greater than ourselves. You know, 50, uh, I think at the end number was 51,000 meals were packed. So um, just knowing kids there, that means that um, these kids will thank God for providing for them 51,000 times without knowing of you, that you were the ones who helped it happen. They will thank God for providing the daily bread that will sustain their life. And we had the opportunity to be the hands of Christ. What a privilege it is. 
Uh, and so I'm just honored to be counted among this community. So thank you for serving. Thank you for fully funding this event too. So thank you for that as well. <laughs> just so proud of us. I'm so proud of you guys. Today we are continuing in our sermon series on beginnings. We're looking at uh, just how we can enter into beginnings into our life. And we are using the each day of creation uh, in doing so. And so just, you know, here we are on day five. I thought it'd be good to kind of pause and look back at what we've talked about, although I'm sure you've been here every single week. On day one, we talked about how light broke into the darkness and how this happens to us by the grace of God, that light breaks into the darkness and God initiates a story and a beginning. Day two, we looked at how there is a time of separation and sifting and expanding that happens and how there has to be this expanse for God to birth something new into our life. On day three, we discovered that we are left with seeds of potential, seeds of, uh, of opportunities to bring forth an endless cycle of creativity and goodness. And then last week, day four, we talked about how God created the sun and the moon and the stars, and with it, God created rhythms to our life, seasons to our life. And we realized that God has a season, has a reason for every single season and a purpose for each chapter in, the, in our lives. So today, we turn to the fifth day, as we just heard read, where God creates the animals of the sky and of the water. This morning at breakfast, I was talking to Jack about his birthday. You know, he's a three-year-old son. And I asked him, hey, what do you want to do for your birthday? He said, I, I want to have a squid party. Not just like a sea creature, just squids. He's a weird kid. Um, so, you know, today I was just thinking about how God creates just life and these animals flying through the air and in the ocean. And uh, what is interesting, though, is on this fifth day, embedded in this fifth day, is something really, really peculiar. This is what Genesis 1, 20 and 21 says. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which water teems and moves about in it according to their kinds. So but what, there's a word in here that's really bizarre. It's kind of peculiar. It's... Um, out of all the different animals that God could describe or name, only one is named in here, and it's in the middle of this, in verse 21. This word for the great creatures of the sea is actually this word, tenion. It's a word that is found 28 times in the Bible. It can also be translated sea monster, dragon. <laughs> 28 times in the Bible it's mentioned, usually it's with this ominous evil presence, this scary, fear-inducing presence. And only one time is it used in a positive light in all the Bible. So why in the world would God choose that animal to talk about? Within this one day, why in the world is there this mention of the sea monster being created? It makes me think, why did God create within the beginnings the monster? Also mosquitoes. Why did God create mosquitoes? But why is that? I, I think, in part, monsters are a part of our beginnings. Monsters are just a part of our life. They're part of our existence. They exist lurking underneath the surface. Uh, they are sources of anxiety and fear and pain. And what I think we have explored in already and what we will find in this day is that for us to enter into new beginnings, we will have to face monsters. 
Because oftentimes it's when we're stepping from one chapter into another that they have a tendency to pop out. They stand between us and the new life that God has created us for. So for some monsters, it, for some people, monsters might be addictions that reappear too quickly. For others, a monster might be a pile of debt that seems to hold you back from experiencing newness. For others, a monster might be just the presence of shame in your life and how shame has been embedded in the religion that you grew up in. Maybe the mistakes that have plagued you. Or maybe just the monster is just the fear of the unknown. Before we walk into something new, it's just, man, I just do not know how this will turn out. Monsters are part of our life. But they're also part of our communal life. They're a part of our society's life. For us as God's people, what is lurking beneath the surface in our society? There seems to be a monster of anger and bitterness that's brewing within our society today. That's so apparent. It could be how, cont uh, how contentious we've become. Martin Luther King Jr. talked about America's three-headed monster, that of consumerism, violence, militarism, and racism. It's just a part of the American tradition. Monsters are a part of our personal life. They're part of our communal life. They are there. And what I think this story is trying to teach us, what we find here in this story that we're about to see in Exodus, is that for us to enter into the new beginnings that God has created us for, that we will have to learn to face the monster. We will not continue to walk into God's recreating work without facing the monsters that are before us. So today we're going to look back into the life of Moses. We began in day one looking at Moses. So we're going to return. This is fast forwarding the story of Moses a little bit more. This is after Moses was used by God to deliver the people. But remember the, the first encounter that, that God had with Moses through the burning bush and the words that we have there. This was in Exodus 3, 7 through 8. Uh, this is the word from God to Moses. So I've come down to rescue them, the people uh, enslaved in Egypt, from the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. That word good is the same word tov that God is saying over each day of creation. It is good. This land I'm going to bring you to, it is good. It's flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. What's interesting for the Hebrew community is that they seem to latch on to this promise. But just like we all do, they selectively latch on to the promise. What do they latch on to? The first half. It's going to be a good land flowing with milk and honey. And they seem to neglect the second half of the promise. It will already be inhabited. You know, like... There, it's already, there are already people there. There are already tribes there. There are already communities there. So God promised them a home that had already been inhabited, and they didn't seem to hold on to that promise the same way. And as the story goes, God delivered the Hebrew nation from Pharaoh, began to move them towards the promised land, but they encountered another problem. Between slavery and between the promised land, they, they had to deal with something. And what was that? Evil, yeah. Themselves, yes. Evil, some themselves. What about physically between the desert, the Red Sea? Yes. Thank you. I should have put a map up. I know. I was baiting you. Sorry. It was the desert. So between 
Slavery and this promised land, they had to experience the desert. They traveled there. Some people uh, uh, estimate it was a, a year's journey through the desert of thousands of people traveling there. Deserts are a part of our stories of beginnings. As much as we want to fast forward through the desert moments of our life, we can't because it's a part of us dealing with m many of those uh, more theological things that you thought of. Sin, dealing with themselves, all those things. What happens in the desert is it, it produces something in us. Deserts are places where we learn to trust God. They're places of scarcity. There's places where it seems like life is right on the edge. And deserts are the place where we have to learn to trust God. So consider for Moses, God calls him to lead the people into the desert, to lead thousands and thousands of people into the desert. How will we have water to drink? And God says, I will be with you. What will we eat? I will be with you. How will we know where to go? I will guide you. You know, just God is wanting to put them in the place where they are going to learn to trust him, to, to have this in the midst of their own scarcity that they can know that God is trustworthy. You see, trust has to be developed before they are ready to enter into the promised land. Same thing with us. Trust has to be developed before we enter into the new beginnings in our life that God has dreamt for us as well. The journey that began in Egypt walked them into the desert and ultimately it led them to this place this critical moment at this place called Kadesh Barnea. In Hebrew, the name Kadesh Barnea literally means a holy wandering, a sacred wandering. Their wandering had come to an end in this holy moment. And Kadesh Barnea is at the border of the promised land. It's right where the desert ends and something else begins. Uh, for those who've been around, you, you know we've talked about this word, but it's an ecological name of, called ecotone. And this word ecotone, is, it's a really beautiful thing. And Kadesh Barnea actually displays it. An ecotone is a place where one type of land butts up against another type of land. And what happens with, ecologists can tell us this, is that in those two places, right there at that threshold, life bursts into being. It's right there between plains and beaches. Uh, it's right there between two different places that life has a tendency to come forth. I actually think Austin probably is an ecotone. As you think about Austin, it's the, it's the plains that, as you look east, it's the plains, it's the flatlands, and then all of a sudden you look west and it's the beautiful hill country. And here we are on this ecotone. This word ecotone is actually really interesting because that word ecotone means, eco means land and tonus means tension. And so the places where we are in these thresholds, these sacred wanderings lead us to these places where there's great life and there's also great tension. It's where things feel uncertain and unpredictable, yet within that there is life bursting forth. You actually might be in an ecotone moment in your life today, leaving one chapter right there on the threshold towards a new, another chapter. And what you need to know are these places are holy places. They're sacred. They're thin places. So after a year of following God through the desert, the Hebrew nation ended up at this place, Kadesh Barnea. And God wanted to send in spies to go see the promised land. I think of it as a test of sorts. God wanted to send in spies to see, actually, 
of God saying, hey, you can test me. I want you to test to see if this truly is the promised land that I told you about, the land flowing with milk and honey. But I think God was also testing them to see whether or not they were ready for it, whether or not they've been fully developed yet. So these spies go in and they explore the land for 40 days. For 40 days, these 12 spies are there. And uh, the whole community just waits for their response. After 40 days, uh, they come back and they share two things that we've heard read. They share, first off, it is exactly like God promised it would be. It truly is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's incredible. God was, uh, was trustworthy and told us the truth. But secondly, there are giants there. <laughs> they're, they're huge. They're descendants of Anak, uh, which I am not a descendant of Anak. Uh, but they are huge. And uh, they, this is what they say. We saw the Nephilim there. The Nephilim are giants. They're uh, kind of... Uh, they're just storied uh, giants there in that culture. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. The spies began saying how these giants could not be defeated, and the spirit of the people were absolutely crushed. But out of the 12 spies, there were two, Joshua and Caleb, who had a different point of view. They pleaded with the people to go forward into the promised land. They said, no, 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 God has brought us here for this purpose, but the other 10 spies continued to tell stories of how large these people were and how impossible it would be to win the battle. So what does the community do? They have these 10 spies who are saying there's no way and these two spies are seeking to be faithful. What do they do? Numbers 14 begins like this. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. If only we would have died in Egypt or in the wilderness... Why, did the Lord, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Immediately at the threshold of this new beginning, as they face these giants, as they face these monsters, they begin to look with longing back to slavery. they like, oh man, why did we leave Egypt? Isn't that a human response? When things get difficult, when we're on the edge of something unknown, we look back at status quo, even though we know it wasn't the fullness of life, at least we knew what to expect. I've visited with people who are homeless and I've talked to people who work with people who are homeless. And it's an interesting thing. I know that in Community First, they experience this. When they bring someone who's been living on the streets and they bring him to Community First, it's like this threshold, and many of them go back to living on the streets because they know what to expect. And this other type of life, living with this community and having to figure out how to live in that, in that place, it just seems too difficult. You see, it's a human response that all of us have. When we are called to live out great courage and take great risks, we have a temptation to go back to Egypt, go back to status quo where we can play it safe and just kind of be okay with not the, the life that we know we are created for, one that doesn't require courage and hope and faith. Numbers 14, 6, Joshua and Caleb, those speak up. Uh, Joshua and Caleb, who were among those who were had to explore the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire uh, Israelite assembly, 
The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is God is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. You see, something was so different about Joshua and Caleb. They are seeing things so very differently. We see here two different responses here on this ecotone. One is a set of spies who were focused on the size of the giants, their walls, their power. But Caleb and Joshua, where was their focus? On the trustworthiness of God, the loyalty and the power of God. Their protection is God, but the Lord is with us. These 10 spies, their attention was in the wrong place. It was in the wrong place. When they saw these giants, they could have remembered how God was faithful, how God was powerful. He blotted out the the sun. He could make the sun go dark. They could have remembered that. They could have remembered how God parted the sea and swallowed up Pharaoh's army. They could have remembered how God had provided for them every single step of the way, even providing them their, their breakfast that morning. But instead, they chose to see how big the enemy was. And Joshua and Caleb, they tried reminding the people, but sadly, what did the people do after these two spies spoke out? Verse 10, but the whole assembly talked about stoning them. (laughs) Shut up. We're done hearing your faithful words of courage. It's weird. It's like oddly threatening to hear people speak hope. One of my favorite movies, Shawshank Redemption, speaks of that so beautifully. But it's, some, for some reason, it's just when you hear people who have hope and you've just made, just made peace with living a subpar life, it's just, it kind of cracks your heart open and it makes you have this capacity to be vulnerable again. And we have a tendency to not want that. It creates a crisis and no one likes a crisis. So what do we do? We'd rather kill that voice than to live in that place where we might have to trust again. Tragically, this is what, how the Lord responds in verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, how long will the, they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? Mark's translation is, what else do I have to do? Like, what else do I have to do for you to earn your trust, to show you that I'm going to provide for you? I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to make a way. God saw that these people were not ready for the promised land. That's what happened here in this moment. They failed the test. And the work of the desert hadn't been completed yet. They hadn't learned to fully trust. They weren't ready to face their monsters. So what does God do? God tells Moses to take the people, start walking back in the desert. And then they will spend 40 years walking that desert. The same desert took one year to cross, 40 years as someone who loves efficiency and driving that drives me crazy. 40 years wandering, going around and around. What are they doing? God's saying, you're going to learn to trust me in this. And it's for your own good. Sadly, everyone who had seen all the signs that God had done in the, in the deliverance from Egypt, all the signs that God had done in the first trip to Kadesh Barnea, none of them would lay eyes on the promised land again. They would all die in the desert. 
It would only be their descendants after 40 years. They would, those people who had learned, and they were raised in the desert. They had, were, were born in the place of trust. They were the ones who would see the promised land. All but Joshua and Caleb. The Lord allowed them to stay alive, their family as well, to be brought into the promised land. This teaches us the promised land is opens, it is opened up for those who have learned the ever important lesson to wholeheartedly trust in God, especially when we have to face the monsters in our life. In your own journey for a new beginning, the one that you carry in your heart and your mind, the one that you would like, if I just, I wish I could step into a new life, this is what it would be like. In your own journey towards that place, we oftentimes come in these spiritual ecotones, these places that are right on the edge of something new. And it's in those places that monsters have a tendency to, to jump out. So what do we do? What do we do? I think this story is teaching us a couple of different things that we can do. For those who are facing a monster in your journey today, first is take notice whom you're listening to. This community did not enter into the promised land because they chose to listen to the wrong voice, the voice of fear and distrust and cynicism. And for us, if we're going to enter into new beginnings into our life, we're going to have to choose what voice we're going to listen to. Is it the, the voice of fear who sizes up the giants? Or is it to listen to the voice that believes that God is bigger? Whatever it is we're facing, that God is bigger. The reality is you can only take one of those two voices into the battlefield. You can only take, you have to choose between each of those voices. And this story is teaching us that when we choose the right voice, it might not be the most popular one. It might not be the majority voice. It might be the voice of the minority. And quite often God speaks from the margins of our community, teaching us prophetically from the margins. So in your life, who is speaking truth and love? Who is the person who is, loves you too much to be agreeable? Who reminds you that God is bigger? And furthermore, can you be that for other people? So take notice the voice you're listening to. Secondly, what are the stories of God's goodness that you can claim? The Hebrew people had every reason to trust in God. God had displayed his power and his loyalty again and again and again. But the problem is, the further they got away from the Red Sea, the more that was just a story. Not something that actually was the spiritual reality of their life. It was just a story. When you walk up to the, the ecotones of your life, what are the stories, what are the experiences, that reality that you can claim, whether from your own life or from Scripture? There have been times in my life where I've been planning and hoping for something to happen, and then I'm right on the edge, and all of a sudden you start, I st I've started second-guessing myself. And I've had to remember the stories, the experience that God had done working from the past, preparing me for that moment. I had to, I had to claim Scripture to help get me through that, that to remind myself that we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. And I have to hold on to that to move me forward. What are those stories in your own life? Thirdly, uh, to invite companions for the journey to walk with you and remind you who you are. Notice the uh, faithful minority of the spies were two. There were two people, Caleb and Joshua. And I wonder if they were left alone, if they would have the boldness to speak up to stand up against the other, uh, other 10. I'm not sure. We'll never know that. 
But what I do know is this, that we need companions for our journey. This was Jesus' practice. When he sent out his disciples, he never sent them alone. He always sent them in twos because he knew that they would need to be reminded of who they truly were, a companion for the journey. So if you are walking up into something new, if you are in this ecotone in your life, I just want to say, do not go alone. Don't do it alone. You need a companion, someone to walk with you with boldness, to some, for someone to, to carry you, to remind you who you are. And fourth, we need to learn the very, very challenging lesson, which is to embrace constant dependence. If we want to face the giants in our life, if we want to enter into newness, we are going to have to learn to embrace our vulnerability and dependence upon God. Our strength comes from the most surprising place, dependence. This would be how the Hebrew people would experience newness in their life. They would only enter it if, if they learned that God longs to be depended upon. Not half-hearted dependence, but uh, not God as a backup, but a full-hearted dependence upon him. This story is pointing us to that fact, that when we live with those four different ideas, that we are being prepared to enter into something new. This story is pointing us to the fact that we can face whatever giant or monster in our way. We find this not only in this story, but we also see it so clearly with who Jesus is. Jesus was a greater Caleb and Joshua. Jesus went through the deserts of his own life, and he faced many monsters of this world. And ultimately, he faced the monster of sin and separation. But he did that knowing that he would make a way for us. He completely, wholeheartedly depended upon the Father. And his life, is, in his life and his story led him to a cross, which was the greatest spiritual and eternal ecotone ever existed. All of the time, all of heaven and hell hinged upon that ecotone right there. And he who knew no sin became sin for you and I. And Jesus laid himself down, facing that monster and winning a victory. And because of that, you have access to that victory in your life. Wherever you are in your life, your days begin in Jesus' victory. We have access to that. Those who trust in, in Christ, you are considered his people. You've been adopted into his family. And just like Caleb and Joshua's families were saved by the faith and the trust of one, so it is with you. John's gospel begins with this. John 1.12 says this, But as many as received him, to them he gave them the right to become children of God, even, those, even to those who believe in his name. Friends, believe in his name. Whatever battle you're in, believe in his name. Whatever monster you might be facing, believe in his name. So give God your trust. Don't go it alone. Face your giants because God knows that as you depend on him, he will grow you and he will walk you to whatever beginning that you have in your heart and your mind today.